Thank you, student choir, and thank you, Matt, for your leadership with them. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to John chapter 4. We've been in the Gospel of John for quite a while, and we're going to continue in John. We're going to be in chapter 4. And if you were here with us last Sunday, we're going to pick up where we left off, where Jesus was having this conversation with this Samaritan woman at the well. Now, for those of us that are here, we don't quite understand how difficult this conversation must have been, that it wasn't well received to those that were accompanying Jesus, those that were with Jesus. This type of love, this conversation that Jesus has with this Samaritan woman, it really kind of typifies the love that Jesus has. But to the disciples, especially to all the Jews, they simply don't get it. Now remember in chapter 3, Jesus has this long, extended conversation with Nicodemus. That made sense to them. Nicodemus, remember, was a religious man. He was a leader. He was influential. So they get why Jesus would, would spend time with Nicodemus. But then when it comes to this Samaritan woman, it just doesn't make sense to them. Now, remember that Jesus was traveling through Samaria, which was a big deal because Jews would do almost anything to avoid having any kind of contact with the Samaritans because they believed that the Samaritans were unholy, that they would become defiled if they were even in their presence. So even if they had to go a longer route, they would do whatever it took to make sure they didn't have to go through Samaria. But in chapter 4, verse 4, we read that the Holy Spirit compelled Jesus to go through Samaria. Now, you and I, when we read the Bible, we have the benefit of having the, the, the complete story. We know that Jesus had to go through Samaria, not because it was a shorter route, but he was going through Samaria because God had already instituted that there was going to be a divine appointment that God had already orchestrated for Jesus to be with this woman at the well. So after six hours of traveling, Jesus is tired have you ever noticed there's several statements in the Bible that's kind of like, duh? I mean, what, don't you? of course he was tired. He had been traveling for six hours, and so he's tired, and he decides that he's going to take a break. So he finds Jacob's well, and he sits there, and he takes a break while the disciples, they decide that they're hungry, so they go up ahead, and they're going to get some food. Now, Jesus is sitting there, and it's important to know what time of day it was. It was in the middle of the day, so the hottest part of the day, which makes it unusual when this woman comes up to the well, and she comes to do what? She comes to draw water. Why is that unusual? It's unusual because most women, while that was kind of their, their, their task that they would be drawing water, most of them would come during the coolest part of the evening, not during the middle part of the day. So the fact that this Samaritan woman who has this dark past is coming during the middle part of the day, it tells us a lot about her, but it also tells us that she probably was coming during this time just to avoid other people. I just want to make sure that I can keep my distance and no one else is going to bother me. I want to be left alone. But as Jesus so often does, he refuses to leave this woman alone in her shame. So there's some conversation that goes back and forth with this woman. And finally, after this conversation takes place, Jesus proves that he's more than just a common man. And the way he proves that he's more than just an ordinary man is he begins to reveal information about her past. 
And as he reveals that he knows about her past, she is shocked because now she knows that this man named Jesus that she just met not only knows about her past, but he knows more about her than he even knows, that she even knows about herself. So she's shocked. Let's be honest, wouldn't you and I, wouldn't we be shocked if someone that we just met a few minutes ago begins to tell us information that no one else should know about? And then where we left the story last Sunday is that Jesus then reveals something about himself to this Samaritan woman who had this dark sexual past, who was considered an outcast to the rest of the world. He reveals something that is the very first time that he has explicitly revealed this to anyone else. And that is that he says, I am the Messiah. And we wrestled with the fact that why is it that God chose that this woman that was an outcast, that was, that was not respected among other people, that had this dark, deep past, this sexual sin in her life, why is it that she is the chosen one that God reveals that Jesus is the Messiah? Not Nicodemus, who was you know, a religious man. That's probably where you and I probably would say, well, we're probably more like Nicodemus if we're honest. We're more like Pharisees than we are the outcast. Again, I don't think we can understand the outrage that this would have been to the Jewish people. That Jesus is even going into a conversation with this Samaritan woman. Remember, she was considered an outcast because, first of all, she was a woman. Women were considered nothing short of someone else's property. They were a possession to men at this time. During Jesus' day, a strict rabbi wouldn't even have a conversation with a woman. Not only does Jesus have a conversation, remember he asked to borrow her drinking utensil, meaning that he was going to defile himself in order to have this relationship with her. Not only was she a woman, she was a Samaritan. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And third, she was a sinner, but not just any type of sinner. She had the worst type of sin possible according to Jesus' day, and that was a sexual sin. But Jesus... Jesus disregarded these three, what I call societal norms, in order to talk to this Samaritan woman. Why? Why did he break these three rules? It's because he cared more about this woman than he cared about his own reputation. It causes me to ask myself, do I care more about what people think about me, what they're going to say, what the chatter is out on the street? Do I care more about my reputation than I do about my friends, my family, my coworkers, those that I love coming to know Christ? What is it that I'm willing to sacrifice? What is it that I'm willing to do in order to see my loved ones develop and to come to faith in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? What is it that you are willing to sacrifice? What is it that you are truly willing to give up in order to see your family, your friends, those that you love come to faith in Christ? What are you willing to do? That's where we pick up the story this morning in John chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 27. There's lots of scripture we're going to go through, so we're going to read a little bit, and then we'll we'll keep going back and forth. So let's start in John chapter 4, verse 27. It says, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Let's pause there for a second. 
See, I love the fact that John gives us this detail that this woman leaves her water jar behind and then she goes back to tell her friends about Jesus. Some Bible commentaries or scholars would say that that's symbolic, that whenever you leave something behind, that you're leaving your old lifestyle behind, and now you're going and you're pursuing Jesus. Remember in the very first chapter of John where the first disciples, they left their fishing nets behind and they followed Jesus. Whether it means that or not, what is undeniable is that this woman, she leaves behind the very reason for which she came, which was a jar to retrieve water, because what she has just learned, what she has just discovered, is more important than why she came to that well. And it's more important to her than that water. And now she runs back home to tell her loved ones. I want to take just a minute and I want you to understand what is it that Jesus is saying to this woman. Let's, let's, let's dissect this conversation for just a minute here. The first thing that we see is that Jesus talks to her and he said, look, I know that you have had multiple sexual partners here. And instead of being repulsed by this, instead of being offended and trying to defend herself and saying why this is right or why this is wrong, she simply accepts it as truth. Remember, she calls him a prophet. So Jesus first, he calls out her sin. She understands and she agrees, yes, I've been in this sin and this is wrong. And then Jesus confronts her with what? With himself. He says, here's your sin, and I am the provision. Not only am I calling you out, but even better than that, I am going to show you that I am the grace, I am the need, I am the, 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 what is going to give you forgiveness for your sin here. In essence, Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman, I am the way to the Father. Not through Judea, not through Jerusalem and the temple for the Jews, not in Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans. I am the way that you can have access to God. And then when she understands these two things, notice what she does. She runs off, and the first thing that she says is she tells her friends, come and see this man who told me everything that I've ever done. And then she asks a question. Could this be the Christ? See, church family, Jesus brought her to see, first, her need for forgiveness. You can't become a Christian. You can't be a follower of Jesus unless you first understand that you need to be forgiven. Once she understood her need for forgiveness, then he explained that the provision that her forgiveness is found in Christ. He says, look, I alone can give you eternal life. Friends, that's what we're called to do today as followers of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, when we share the gospel, when we share what Jesus has done in our life, we are called to first confront other people with their need for grace, to confront other people and to show them their need for Christ, and then to say, hey, here's the, here's the good news. Jesus is available for all who will call out to him and ask for forgiveness. He is your provision. And this makes me wonder, why have we strayed so far from that? Why have we made this so complicated of sharing our faith and sharing the gospel that we've got to get all those? I'm not saying the doctrine's not important. I'm not saying theology's not important. But at the heart of the matter, sharing the gospel, saying you need to be forgiven, and here's Jesus, and he has made the price for you so that you can be forgiven and you can have salvation. I think one of the reasons that we've gotten so far away from it is we hear people say, listen to this, tell me if you have people in your own life that say this. Well, I'm okay with Christianity. I'm okay with Jesus. But what's up with all these Christians trying to get in my business? Why can these Christians not just be okay with me not having a faith? 
Why can Christians not be okay with other religions? Why do they always have to convert other people? Why can't they just leave them alone and just be okay with following Jesus themselves? Have you heard that before? Let me give you an analogy here. If you had a friend that was trying to lose weight, and they're trying to lose weight, so they're trying this new weight loss supplement. And they're taking it, thinking it's some vitamin. They think that it's some magic pill that's going to make them lose weight. But you discover that it's actually poison. You discover that if they continue to keep this pill that they are taking, that it's eventually going to lead to their death. This is one of your closest friends. Would you say, well, I don't want to have that awkward conversation Well, I don't want to offend them. Well, I I want to make sure that we're still going to be friends. So I'm just going to sit by and let them live their own lifestyle, and that's okay. I sure hope not. What would you do? My hope is that that you would run to them, and you say, if you continue to take this, this is going to kill you. This is going to lead to your destruction. And then you would say, but let me show you an alternative. Let me show you something else that you can take, that if you'll take this, this will give you the result that you're looking for. Why would you say that? Because you look forward to that conversation? Because you want to offend them? Because you want to disappoint them? No, the very opposite. It's because you love them, you are willing to risk that awkwardness. You're willing to risk that that, that, that distance that may be caused because you know that if they continue in that lifestyle, it will end in eternal separation from God. Church family, our Christian faith was never meant to be private. It's so tired of people that say that they're true followers of Jesus. Oh, well, we're, gonna talk, we're not talking about politics or religion or money. I'm fine with two of those. But you are not called to keep your religion. You're not called to keep your faith private. If you truly believe that you were dead in your sins, if you truly believe there's nothing good in you, that the only way that you will be, have access into heaven, the only way that God is going to say, enter into my, my, my kingdom, the only reason that you are going to have God say that you're forgiven, that you're redeemed, that you're saved, it's not because of your church attendance. It's not because you did good deeds. It's not because you gave money to the church. But the only reason that you have life in Christ is because of what Jesus did for you. How can you keep quiet about that? You don't keep quiet about things that have radically changed your life. We talk about football. We talk about restaurants. We talk about politics. Why would we keep the most important thing in our life quiet in our own life? The Samaritan woman, she discovers this about Jesus. She can't keep quiet about it. One more thing before we move on here. As I was reading this text, it made me ask myself, why is it that when this woman goes back, why does she ask the question, could this be the Christ? She knew it was. She believed that he was Jesus. She knew that, remember, she she proved that she knew a lot about the Old Testament, knew that the Messiah was coming. Why does she ask, could this be the Messiah? Why does she say, hey, I've met the Messiah, and this is him, and you've got to be with him? Got to remember the culture. Remember in the culture that women were not respected among men. That women, if they were to speak something, that the men would disregard what they were saying, especially when it came to religious matters, and especially if they knew her background, they wouldn't listen to a word that she's saying. So instead, this woman goes back home and she simply tells other people about this conversation that she had with Jesus. And then she humbly asks them to go and to see if his identity is who she thinks that he is. 
If you keep reading in verses 31 through 38, you see that they go out and they investigate this claim for themselves. And most of them do claim that he is the Messiah. Let's keep reading verse 31 through 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So here you have Jesus who's sitting on this well after he'd been traveling for six hours. He's resting. This Samaritan woman comes up to him and he begins to engage in this conversation. We know that he's tired. We know that he's hungry. But all of a sudden, it's almost as if when Jesus begins to see the potential that God has placed in this woman, once he begins to understand that this is the very reason he's here is to invest and to pour into this woman, it's almost as if he takes his hunger, it's almost as if he takes his weariness and he puts it on the back burner and he doesn't give it a second thought because Jesus' greatest joy was in fulfilling his father's work. That was far greater than anything that hunger could have given him, far greater than anything that, that, that his tired body could have had. So he starts pouring in to this woman. Now, one thing that I think that Jesus is demonstrating for us and that we can take away from this passage is I believe that there are times in our life, maybe even seasons in our life, that God will call us to put our physical welfare on the back burner in order for us to be able to say, like Jesus, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me here. Do you have that sort of focus in your life? Do you have that burning desire to do God's will? Is honoring the Lord and fulfilling his purpose that he has placed in your life, is that your first priority? Does it even make your top 10 list? That every day you wake up and say, God, I know that you've allowed me to live today. That that's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. I know you've placed me in this environment. You've placed me in this workplace. You've placed me in this home. You've placed me in opportunities. You have placed me here for a reason. And it's probably what, more than what's on my checklist to do today. And do you ask every single day, God, show me what your will is. Because my desire is to honor you today, even if it's not on my radar. Do we have the same desire that Jesus had? Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, he boldly said this to the congregation. I'm not this bold, so I'm going to read what he said, and you can infer what you want from it, all right? So this is from Charles Spurgeon. He said, some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings, the Bible readings and prophetic conferences and other forms of spiritual dissipation would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and the needy around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored for very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no child, little child to tell of the Savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no object, in fact, to live for. And who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you are ready to die of despair? Listen to me, friends. If you're here this morning and you just feel in your soul, something is not right in my life. Something is missing. And you say, I'm reading God's word. I'm coming to church. 
I'm praying, but I just feel like there's got to be something more. Something is missing in my life. Maybe it is that you need to begin getting participated in God's work. You need to be involved in the work of the Lord. We are redeemed. We are saved so that we can glorify him. We are not saved. We do not receive salvation so we can sit in a pew and sit and soak up more knowledge. We glorify God when we take what we have learned, we apply God's word, and then we go out and we invest and we serve other people. Christ lived to do God's will. That is what motivated him. That was the key. That was what has inspired him. Same thing true for you. Are you inspired? Are you motivated when you are presented with an opportunity to do God's work? Or are you drained to think, oh, got to do something else for God. Oh, they're asking me to do something else. If we want to be like Jesus, then we will find that we are motivated by the opportunities that God places in front of us to serve him. One of the most asked questions that I get as pastor of, of this church, it's a good question, but it's the question of, Blake, how do I know what God's will is for my life? How do I know what God wants me to do with my life? Students, especially those of you in the the first two rows, many of you right now, you're thinking, what is it that God wants me to do with my life? I know where I'm going to college. I know where I'm going to work. But what is it he wants me to major in? What is it that he wants me to do in this dating relationship? What is it he wants me to do as far as am I going to work when I'm on college? What about the friends that I'm going to have? What is it that is God's will for my life? We all want to know God's will for our life, don't we? Nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'll raise my hand. I want to know, God, what's your will for my life? As a church staff on Monday mornings, we've been reading a book together um, by Francis Chan called The Forgotten God. It's a book about the Holy Spirit. If you read the Weekly Word Tuesday, it's a book that we're going to be studying together as a church family on Wednesday nights, talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. And Francis Chan's the author, and one of the, the titles is called Forget about God's will for your life. I wish she'd be a little bit more blunt about what he's talking about, right? Forget about God's will for your life. In this chapter, he points out that few people, especially the men and women of God, that you go back to the Old Testament, few people does God ever lay out, here's your life plan. Here's what I want you to do with the rest of your life. In fact, most of the characters in the Bible that we read about, he doesn't even say, here's what I want you to do for the next three years. Here's your five, your ten year. God doesn't give that to him, does he? Instead, listen to what Francis Chan says. He says, it's easy to use the phrase, God's will for my life, as an excuse for inaction or even disobedience. Listen to this next statement. It's much less demanding to think about God's will for your future than it is to ask what he wants you to do in the next ten minutes. It's safer to commit to following him someday than instead of following him this day. High school graduates, this is my challenge for you. Obey him today. Obey God today with all of your heart. Obey him tomorrow with all of your heart. Obey him the next week with all of your heart. And if you continue to obey him, if you continue to see him and strive to obey him, then you will know that he's not going to allow you to go off this path that's not his will for your life. What is the secret for the fulfilled life? By the way, I'm talking to high school students, but this is for all of us today. 
What's the secret for us having a life that when we get to the end of our life, we can say, I lived a life that was fulfilling. I lived a life that was full of purpose and meaning. Here it is. It is, it is complete submission to doing what God's word says. That we're going to say, I'm going to study God's word. I'm going to know what God's word says. Then once I know what God's word says, I'm going to seek to honor him above seeking the approval of my roommates, of my fraternity brothers, my sorority sisters. I'm going to seek to honor God above everything else, even above meeting the needs that I have in my own life. That is when we will find that we are fulfilled. We know what God's word says. We live God's words and we seek his approval, not the approval from others. Everything else that we strive for, Entertainment, hobbies, career, fame. There's nothing wrong in and of themselves. But it's just like I talked about last Sunday with the Krispy Kreme donuts. After 15 minutes, it leaves you hungry, right? You can pursue those things in your life, even your career, but you will never be fulfilled. You will never have the life that God wants you to have until you conform to his will and you seek that you're going to serve him with all of your heart. God doesn't give us salvation so that we can just sit and soak and remain selfish like we were before we came to Christ. When you come to Christ, you are surrendering your life. You're surrendering your desires. You're surrendering your will, saying, God, it's not my life anymore. It's not what I want. It's not my desires. Here's my life. I'm coming with open hands. You show me what you want, and I surrender to following after you with complete abandonment. Let's look at our last section of Scripture this morning. Verses 35 through 38. It says, Do not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. I learned something new as I was studying this text the last few weeks. Remember, you've got to understand context when you're reading scripture. If we don't understand context, that's why I always encourage you to use a study Bible to look at those notes. If you don't, you can make it say whatever you want. What is it that Jesus meant when he's saying that the fields are white for harvest. Okay, let's go back to our context. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Were his disciples Jews or Samaritans? This is the interaction part. Jews, that's right. But he's talking, he's referring back to the Samaritan woman. So he's talking not just about Jews. Now he's talking about Samaritans. Do you know the type of clothing that Samaritans wore during Jesus' day? Stark white clothing. So perhaps when Jesus says this phrase, the fields are white for harvest, quite possibly he's referring to the spiritual harvest of reaching the Samaritans with the gospel, of saying that I know that, that, that you, 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 you don't like these guys. You think that you're better than them. You think that they are a lower caste system than you. But if you would just open your eyes, guys, I have given you a harvest. That harvest is today. And if you would just understand that I created them in God's image and I want you to go and reach, I want you to share the gospel, even with those that you think that you are better than. Let me ask you, do you have the same sense of urgency 
to share the gospel with people that you know that if you received a phone call today that they had died and you go to their funeral in two days, that you would sit there in that sanctuary, in that funeral home, and you would know almost beyond certainty that they have died and that they, have, they are spending an eternity separated from God. Does that give you a sense of urgency? Students, over the last few years, you've been focusing on gearing up to get to this point in your life of accomplishing this stage of your life. For many of you, college is next. And that you are so focused on that education, you are so focused on what is it that God has in store for you. But listen to me this. Above all, your first, your highest, your most important calling is not education. I know some of your parents are cringing right now, but it's true. It's not education. It's not a career. It's not friendships. It's not about what God's going to do next with my, my dating life. Your first and highest and most important calling in life as you go to this next stage of your life is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Your highest calling is to say that I am going to honor God even when I'm studying. I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. I hope that, that, I hope that my, my, my reputation as a follower of Jesus is more important than my GPA. I hope that the people know that I'm a follower of Jesus more than they know my batting average, more than they know, you know how cool or how popular that I am. May you not forget that your first and your highest calling is a follower of Jesus Christ. By the way, the rest of us as adults, we don't get off the hook here either. I'm talking to the students right now, but the same is true for us. Kevin Thompson, when he was here a few weeks ago, he, he asked us, what is it that your non-Christian friends know you by? Your non-Christian friends, your non-Christian uh, associates or colleagues that, you know, that know you, what do they know you as? Oh, well, he's an engineer, an accountant, a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher. Oh, well, they are, they're a grandparent, a grandmother, a grandfather, a brother, a sister. Do they know you by your personality? Oh, they're a hard worker. They're funny. They're fun to be around. I sure hope it's not you're just known by the fact that you're an Alabama or Auburn fan. Our first and highest calling above all else, we are to be known as devoted followers of Jesus. That's not just some secondary title that we carry. Oh yeah, and I think he goes to church somewhere. I'm not really sure where. I hope and pray that our desire is that when people speak our name, the very first thing they think about is, man, when I think of that person, I think of Jesus Christ. I think of their passionate pursuit to honor him, to honor his Lord, to honor her Lord and Savior more than anything else. The last two verses that I read, Jesus said that there's going to be a, a good bit of reaping it's going to take place. But he also says that some people will continue and that they will sow, but they'll never see results. Parents, many of you can understand that right now. You have sowed seeds into your kids, you have tried to instill different things, and you still haven't reaped the benefit. For all of us, there's been things in our life that we have tried so hard, we put all this effort, but we just didn't get the result we wanted. If we're honest, it's disappointing. It's difficult to want to keep going when we don't see the results of what we're looking for. If you were here a few months ago, I talked about one of my heroes of the faith by a guy by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller took care of over 10,000 orphans. He's famous for having these bold, audacious prayers that he asked God, and God miraculously time after time after time after time would answer these prayers. Money would just show up for the orphanage without him ever asking one single person for money. 
George Mueller had three people, three men in his close circle of friends who weren't followers of Jesus. For months on end, he would pray every single day for these three gentlemen to come to faith in Christ. If you read his journal, it's a short book. It's an, it's an encouraging book. It's also convicting to read the prayers that he prayed. There would be journal entries. It would be a month long, and every single day he prayed for the salvation of these three friends. When Muller died, not one of these men had come to faith in Christ. That's not the end of the story. Before all of these three gentlemen died, all three came to faith in Jesus Christ. Two of them came to faith in their 70s. One came to faith in Jesus when he was 80 years old. See, Mueller, what did he do? He sowed. But someone else came behind him and they had the privilege of doing the reaping. Church family, whether we find ourselves sowing or reaping, we are to live with the same sense of urgency for those that don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ living in their heart. You've heard the saying said over and over again that the road to hell is paved with what? Good intentions. It's time for us to get rid of the excuses. It's time for us to get rid of the uncomfortableness. Well, I'm afraid of sharing the gospel. I'm afraid of telling them what Jesus has done in my life. It's time for action. Jesus said that the harvest is when? Now, not tomorrow, not next week. The harvest is today. Let me leave you with this question, then we'll pray and we'll be finished. If God came to each and every one of us today, and he said, friend, Today, I'm going to give salvation to every single person that you have faithfully and consistently been praying for over the last month. How many people will become a Christian today? Every person that you've been praying for that's been on your prayer list for the last month, today, bam, I'm going to give them salvation. Do you even have a prayer list? Do we have a burden for those that are lost? If not, it's probably that we don't have this type of urgency that Jesus is telling us to have for evangelism. It's probably that we don't have the sense of burden of understanding that there is a heaven, that there is a hell, that there is an eternity that each and every one of us will step into at some point in our life. Why do we not have that sense of urgency? Because we're so comfortable, because we're so complacent, because we can provide for ourselves. Friends, listen to me. Here's the good news. It's not too late to start now. It's not too late to say, God, give me that burden. Holy Spirit, give me that sense of urgency so that I will faithfully begin praying that you would give me an opportunity. And here's the good news. You do the sowing, God will take care of the reaping. It's not your responsibility to get them to come to faith. It's your responsibility to pray and to share. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Lord, I thank you that you don't give up on us. Lord, I fail you time and time again with my lack of urgency, my lack of discipline, my ungrateful heart, and yet we know that your grace covers all of that, and I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for what you are doing in the hearts and lives of every person that's in this room today. We know that you love them even more than they can comprehend. 
Lord, I thank you for our high school graduates, and I thank you for the bright future that you have placed in front of them. But Lord, here's, here's my prayer. Holy Spirit, don't let us waste this opportunity. Holy Spirit, don't allow us to become complacent in our walk with you, that we're okay with mediocrity. God, place within each and every one of us, place within our church as a whole a burden to understand that this is not a game that we play. This is not just something that we can continue to come and check off the list, but this is our life. This is what you have called us to do, to be about your work. And would you place within us not only a sense of urgency, but a burden to share with this dark and dying world the hope of salvation the hope that is available to us because of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would live for you and you alone. That you would convict us of ways in our life that don't line up according to your word. And instead of us making excuses, instead of us trying to to make ourselves feel better about our sin, that we would push into that conviction and we would say, God, cleanse us. God, clean us. God, lead us. God, pursue us so that we can look more like Jesus tomorrow than we do today. Our desire is not to play a game. It's to passionately Follow you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Jesus, we love you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.